Manhattan spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. And welcome to the 98th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. I'm sure you have witnessed how cold it's been here. That's been uh, absolutely horrific. Yeah, I've seen it on the news. Something about like a nor'easter or a polar vortex, whatever you want to call it. It's... You guys were talking about it on Bumblebutt, so it sounds absolutely fucking terrible. Well, I did I did see when I was looking up, you know, what I usually do for crazy people. So the citizens of Texas apparently must have gotten snow for the first time. And yeah. there's a lot of people convinced that this is some sort of uh, weather control thing or like something like that. And they're complaining about their power being out. Yeah, the problem with the people of the deep south, like if Texas gets snow. The problem is they don't really ever get snow. So snowplows have to be pulled from places like northern Missouri and southern Iowa and Nebraska and shit like that. So it's going to take a long time for their roads to get plowed. Right. That's the the worst part. And also their linesmen, like their electrical workers, don't really know how to – they know how to fix like tornado damage. They got that down. But they don't know how to fix it when – you have lines that are covered in ice and, you know, just is that, it's extremely heavy. Is that why down? Is that why all the reports of Texas <laughs> line workers just shooting at them, shooting at the frozen lines, trying to break the ice off? <laughs> I would imagine it's Texas. <laughs> so they got their they got your uh, Yosemite Sam's out there just, just firing their six shooters away. But yeah, it's but what I'm what I'm saying here is like. Yeah, I know they're unprepared for snow and don't usually get it. Do we have to immediately jump to, like, the global cabal is raining snow on Texas to wipe out the power? Oh, yeah. I did see your Instagram story that you sent today that had the people blaming Barry Sotiro for it. So, Well, I mean, not him specifically, but that's who we choose. There was another one that I didn't post, and this lady, like, took snow out of her house and put it inside, she's like, this isn't real snow. You can see the chemicals oozing out of it. I'm like, (laughs) it's just melting snow, lady. I don't, you're fucking insane. That chemical oozing out of it's called water. It's it's dumb, bitch. Yeah, Uh, my brother brother today was laughing about it because he was saying every time it snows in Texas, like an inch, the news people will only be talking about the Texas snow. And then up in Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa, it snows two and a half feet that same day. They don't even mention it. <laughs> they got time for us. Uh, last thing here before we get in, Phil. Whew, uh, we have seen that where the uh, Republican Party's loyalty lies. Um, I know you just covered the, obviously Trump got acquitted, right? And yes. now I have seen they are strong-arming Liz Cheney out of the party. Um, have you seen that? 
No, I haven't actually seen that yet. Yeah, uh, because of because uh, she voted to impeach and the Marjorie Green Taylor stuff. Yes. Yeah, I imagine it's a lot of people who what we were talking about, this new wave of the Republicans who are 100 percent for Trump and the you know the nationalist directions of the party are trying to get especially I think I believe there was was it seven senators who voted to impeach Trump. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that those guys are probably part of the same, you know, situation. Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, five others. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's honestly really sad. Um, I don't I, I don't know. It, do you think they did that just because they think him running again in 2024 is their best chance of winning? I don't think that they believe he'll actually run. I think that they just want to be seen as being on his side. Uh, I was watching the news today. They were talking about how the polls have the majority of Americans thinking that Trump did a bad job and that he like deserves to be impeached or he shouldn't ever be able to hold public office again. The problem is if you break that down into a Republican Party, it goes up to like 90 to 95 percent approval. <laughs> so it's 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 one of these weird things where you would think, oh, the majority of Americans are going this way. You would think they would jump on board. The problem is it's not the majority of the Americans they're looking for. It's the majority of Republicans. Right. They're not trying to cross the aisle when it comes to votes anymore. They right. just want to hold down what they already have. I know. They need term limits so fucking bad. Um, yes, but uh, definitely. Yeah, that shit's probably never going to happen. But anyway, should we get in this bad boy? Yeah, let me just uh, get started here. Do it. At precisely 5.30 a.m. on July 16th, 1945, with almost no one on Earth being aware, the world, as everyone had known it, would change forever. With the first ever test of an atomic device, codename The Gadget, occurring that morning in the barren desert of New Mexico at the USAAF Alamogordo bombing and gunnery range at what David Oppenheimer nicknamed the Trinity test site. This is all now, of course, part of the White Sands missile range. See, I thought what you were going to say is this way. This is when Hulk Hogan uh, body slammed under the giant, but <laughs> I, I guess a nuclear bomb going off would be a bigger, bigger thing to happen. Yes. Also a pretty big day in history, just not quite uh in this time frame, no. <laughs> that was that was really big at the time. Even though, you know, if you would, I'm not going to talk about it. It's that's another day. But. Okay, all right. <laughs> On that day, five thousand three hundred pounds of conventional explosives detonated around the plutonium payload, causing the implosion and proving that the design for nuclear bombs was sound, bringing the Manhattan Project to fruition and setting the stage for when Fat Man and Little Boy would be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, in August of that very same year, which, of course, ended the Second World War and catapulted the rest of the world into the nuclear age. I feel like Fat Man and Little Boy sound like a cute gay couple. I, I don't know why. That's just what I'm getting out of that. What do you think? They do fun little activities yeah. on the weekends. They go, <laughs> they go to brunch. They go antiquing. Yeah, all yeah. that. Uh, They're but, all over Instagram. Yeah. So do you know the size difference like in the bombs themselves between the fat man and the little boy? 
So I do know that the payload on the one that was dropped on Nagasaki was a lot higher, and that's because of its design. So the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was more of the, basically it was like a, it's like an artillery cannon that fires uranium like into a radioactive like uranium shell. And that is a lot smaller payload than when you have these large conventional weapons that surround a nuclear payload and cause it to implode. So I know that the Hiroshima one, usually it's the Hiroshima one that gets put up as the the, the benchmark for all the other ones. But the Nagasaki bomb was a lot more powerful because of its design. Interesting. Okay. After the end of the Second World War, the United States stood alone on the world stage as the only military power backed by the atomic bomb, which would be the trump card in any negotiations that the United States would have and act as a maxim gun deterrent for any nation that would dare stand against the free world. That is, however, until 1949, when the Soviets would hold their very own first ever nuclear bomb test in August 29th, 1949, at Semipalatinsk's test site in Kazakhstan. So they probably don't have a cute name for their nukes, huh? Like a like a medium boy, <laughs> like any of that. <laughs> no, something to do with vodka and potatoes, I imagine. Yeah, or Borsk, Borsk one, <laughs> Borsk boy. There you go. That's what they called their bomb. No, their uh, their first ever test bomb, I guess you could call it, was uh, RDS one. That was the first Russian bomb detonated, but it was nicknamed Pervoya Molina or first lightning. And this came as a result of the Russians speeding up their nuclear research at the end of World War II after Stalin had learned that the United States had made their very own bomb. This, of course, was helped along the way from the German scientists that were captured and taken east during the Allied invasion, and also the Soviet spies who sent back plans from the United States Really, a lot of information and know-how was stolen from Western scientists. So, Pervaya Molina basically translates to first lightning in Russian, I'm assuming. Yeah. Oh, I am. Yeah. Cool. That's okay. I didn't uh, I didn't actually look at the it's all from the news articles. Okay. So. Well, I'm, a, I'm yeah. just going to go out on a limb and assume that is. Yeah, that is the, the translation. It somehow translates to that. Do you think Stalin like put a piece of his mustache on the bomb for good luck? I imagine he <laughs> he maybe poured a little bit of liquor on top of it or something like that. <laughs> Probably kissed it. <laughs> Definitely. Nevertheless, the nuclear arms race had begun, and the world would now live under the sword of Damocles, and the thin line between peace and mutually assured destruction could be crossed with just the push of a button. Now, as we now know, that line would never be crossed. However, there was a finger on that button several times on both sides as the world silently evaded annihilation from nuclear arms many times, things that we're just actually now learning about in some cases. Okay, wasn't this um, something with Trump? Like, didn't he have, weren't they worried Um, about him and the bombs? Well, yeah, of course they're worried about him with the bombs. I mean, (laughs) just like you'd be worried about a child with a full tank of gasoline and matches, you're going to be worried about Trump with the bomb for the same reason. 
That's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I wonder how many people, like, sit in, like, say, a war room or something, and they just kind of know, like, the president, whomever it is, is slightly unhinged and maybe, which is one of those people that is very reactionary, and you're just sitting there like, please, God, don't push that button. <laughs> please, God, don't do anything stupid. Calm down. Well, they never had that situation before. There was never really an unhinged person who had those kind of capabilities. I mean, maybe Nixon might be the most unhinged, but he was pretty, compared to Trump, he was very cognizant, very you know aware of what was going on. But what I'm saying- more intelligent. The, Trump was, hopefully he's the the worst ever to put in there for that situation, but- well, what I mean is, like, yeah, we see the public face of them and we hear, but I'm saying in the privacy of uh, the people who know them at more of an intimate level, mm. how do we really know any of them weren't, like, a little, uh, I don't know, just crazy, basically? Like, slightly crazy or just, like, they they spit that out be like, can we just nuke them? Like, you know, just, like, toss it out as an idea. Yeah, actually, the weird thing is, so back during the like the 50s and 60s, it was the president and his advisors who would stop the generals who just wanted to just nuke them. Uh, there was a situation before the Korean War or during the Korean War when the Chinese invaded North Korea and pushed back the Americans who were almost to the, the very tippy top of the border between China and North Korea. And in response to that, the generals were actually advising the president to go ahead and nuke the Chinese coastal line, coastal cities. Yikes. That would have been scary. Yeah, it was actually during the Korean War that a general, and this was Douglas MacArthur, wanted to use nuclear arms against Chinese cities after China had invaded North Korea in order to attack the United States and push them back. So... Yikes. Yeah, like I said, that could have that could have been bad. Yeah, luckily Truman knew better. He didn't want to use the nukes for a third time, I guess, is the <laughs> deal. Because he was the one who initially used nukes. So. Right. Yeah. A lot of a lot of blood on his hands, let's just say. Uh, just a little bit, yeah. In October of nineteen sixty two, the Cold War that had existed between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union nearly turned hot as the Soviet Union's plans to place medium-range nuclear-tipped missiles on the island of Cuba had been discovered, and the world stood on a knife's edge for nearly three weeks as the Kennedy administration grappled with the choices that lay in front of them. Just think about this for a minute. We just mentioned people in Texas creating a global conspiracy because they got snow. Can you Mm -hmm. imagine the conspiracies that would come out of this today? And people had to wait it on, like, edge about nuclear war for three fucking weeks. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be really, like, read about the history. That three weeks must have seemed like it was three fucking years. Just like how every single week in 2020 seemed like a whole month. I couldn't even imagine living during that time. There were people who had shelters who were actively, go- like, sleeping in their shelters at night because they were sure that, the war was going to go off at night. Yeah, so. you you remember the documentary A Blast from the Past? Yes, of course. Great documentary. <laughs> Great Brendan Fraser <laughs> device. <laughs> That's what his childhood was like. That's why he's such a good actor now. Because yeah. he, he grew up in a bomb shelter with his parents. 
Yeah, Brendan Fraser kind of seems like a dude who didn't have very many friends as a kid. So <laughs> I imagine he did very well in that part. On October 16th, 1962, a high altitude B-2 spy plane piloted by Major Richard Heiser flying a reconnaissance mission over the island had spotted a Soviet SS-4 medium range ballistic missile being assembled on the ground. He relayed this information up the chain until it finally reached the president on the 16th of October, that very same day. Oh, shit. Okay. I'm just envisioning a whole bunch of Russians, like, reading the instruction manual on how to put this thing together, like something they bought from Ikea. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I wonder, really, I mean, it'd be crazy if they were doing it out in the open, like I wonder if it was covered up or if he just saw remnants, but they didn't really talk about that very much. But just imagine if you're that YouTube pilot, just shitting your pants, seeing a fucking ICBM being built on the ground in Cuba. I mean, it's not an ICBM, obviously it's a medium range, but still you'll see a missile down on the ground and it's already there. It's being assembled. They could launch tomorrow. Maybe, you know, I see the rumor I heard was, he was coming over the water and he started to see this like glare on the land and he got closer and there's like a shitload of vodka bottles and then next to the <laughs> vodka bottles was them building a nuclear missile. Yeah, definitely. Just <laughs> <laughs> just borscht and vodka bottles and just uh, potatoes everywhere. <laughs> the Kennedy administration and the military went back and forth for a whole week on what to do about the situation quickly coming to the conclusion that the Soviet nuclear missiles stationed so close to the United States mainland was an unacceptable risk, and that the new threat needed to be curtailed immediately. But at what cost? Kennedy's military advisors came in the form of support for a military intervention, of course, with an aerial bombing of Castro's Cuba, followed by a full-scale land invasion. However, Kennedy with memories of the failed Bay of Pigs fiasco fresh on his mind, and the fear of starting the Third World War with the Soviets resting on his shoulders. The president would choose a different approach entirely, announcing his plan on October 22nd to the Soviets and the American people alike for a full-scale naval blockade of the communist island for the prevention of any further missiles to be delivered to the island. Also, delivering an ultimatum to Castro and Khrushchev, ordering the removal of existing short-range missiles that had already been delivered. See, I thought Kennedy's first plan was going to be to try to give Khrushchev's wife clap, but I guess this would have been a better plan, huh? Yeah, I imagine that is (laughs) always his first, (laughs) his go-to move is just to fuck the dude's wife. Anytime any any, uh, opposing man gets in his way, he just bangs the wife and you know passes on the old herp dude you remember when last podcast was talking about him his how he had sex with women he basically just like pulled it pulled their pants off and then just stuck his stuck it (laughs) in like it's just like oh my god what the fuck is wrong with him I think we talked about this a couple of different times, and every time, every time I say, "Cody, come on now, he's a busy man. He can't, <laughs> he can't just make with the foreplay. He's got to well, in and out. You know, he's got work to do." But, uh, but yeah, you could probably put like a cotton swab from the tip of his penis on a bomb, and it'd just be like this nuclear plague going off. 
<laughs> just the next great pandemic of whatever STDs JFK had. Yeah, I imagine. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> those, ir- those medical syphilis. records are probably sealed, but who knows what he could have had. It's not like people were using condoms back then. No, especially not a Catholic boy like him. Yeah. Oh, a good Catholic would never mm. use a condom. Mm. That's those are, true. Those are made by Satan. Cheating on his wife, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> Blowing it into a condom, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, not how, while the Pope is watching. How, how does that work? You can cheat on your wife all you want, but you better not wear a condom. As long as the babies that result from the from that sex give money to the church every Sunday, I think True. it's all good. In True. the future, if they True. give money, it's all good. <laughs> so that's the reason why the Catholics didn't want people using condoms. They wanted more babies because that's more future revenue. Right. So, right. Very good point, Phil. Yeah. They don't teach that in Catholic school, but you got to learn that outside of the, <laughs> outside of the church. Well, in the end, the gambit would pay off as the Soviet ships en route to Cuba eventually would turn back before engaging the blockade. Now, after the secret deal with the Soviets was struck, in which the United States agreed not only to never invade Cuba, but also remove nuclear missiles of their own from the country of Turkey, which had made the Soviet bloc countries very uneasy and put nuclear weapons on Cuba in the first place along with the ongoing fear of the U.S. invasion of the Cuban island. Okay, so I guess technically, while it might have made the USSR look worse for backing down here, technically having the U.S. get missiles out of Turkey was in their benefit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was the old-fashioned compromise that we never see nowadays. Right. Basically, Russia got something, the United States got something, both sides looked good, not great. And that's how you know a good deal was struck. When both sides are slightly happy, not overjoyed. Right. It's the old style of, you know, right. doing right. things. Good call. Good call. I mean, I'm glad because, man, I don't know if the world could have survived another World War or World War Three at that point. Oh, I mean, if you really think about it, the first World War happened in the 19-teens. Then the Second World War started kind of, for some countries, in the late 20s or the 30s. But, I mean, really it was big during like 39 to 45. So then you have, it's about, what, 20, 25 years later, just about as much time as between World War I and World War II, the possible Third World War. It would have actually fit perfectly. I mean, in an alternate universe, it would have really fit perfectly right in there. Yeah. World War Three happening at that point. True. <sighs> wouldn't have been good, though. No, it wouldn't have been good at all. It It's just like that famous saying, I don't know what World War Three is going to be fought with, but World War Four and Five are going to be fought with sticks and stones. <laughs> true. Very true. World War Three had been adverted. However, the American people and the world wouldn't quite realize just how close the clock had come to striking midnight for decades as the tense standoff with the Soviets nearly wrought a full-scale nuclear exchange on many different occasions during this three-week period. And that is the topic of today's episode, the near misses that the world faced during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, okay. I'm genuinely really curious about this, because this is obviously like an event in America anyway that, you know, they always teach you pretty thoroughly uh, in history class or whatnot. 
Yeah, it's a very important three weeks in American history. Not really, I didn't really learn about this in high school as much, but I did learn about it quite a bit in college. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like, the, this is where I remember it the most. Um, mm. I think that one kind of crazy neurotic teacher really had a, a weird obsession with, like, just U.S. presidents. And uh, I actually think he was a huge Nixon fan, but that's beyond <laughs> That's besides the point. But yeah, I remember him talking about this and his assassination and all of that, like a lot. Yeah, I do remember that teacher eventually going crazy and having to quit the school. (laughs) Sorry for being an ableist and saying the word crazy, but he eventually went crazy and had to quit the school. Yeah. So if you if you watch him teach, he was very passionate, but he was very unstable at the same time. Yeah, he just, I mean, I, I guess it was just some of the kids that he taught were pieces of shit and he didn't <laughs> like it or whatever. I don't know. I have no idea what his mental state was. So I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> Tension and readiness was at an all time high on the 25th of October, just three days after Kennedy had given the ultimatum. When around midnight, an Air Force Security Forces guard stationed at the Duluth Sector Direction Center in Duluth, Minnesota, he had seen a large shadowy figure climbing the fence of the facility. You know what? Here we go. I knew Duluth was pretty important. It's basically no man's land now. Now look at it. You're bringing it up, Phil. Oh, yeah. And you'll find out just how much of a no man's land it is in just a second here. <laughs> they got like so Superior. The... What are you talking about? Oh, I know. It's yeah. It's no Duluth. I'm sorry. You're important out there. It's okay. All of Minnesota. You're important. Just I'm trying to keep think, telling yourself that. I'm trying to think about what the place is called. You go right over the bridge from Duluth into Wisconsin, and uh, what do they name that town? I wish I could remember. Is it, no. is it Prairie du Chien? No, 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 no. I can't, I can't remember. But it's just it's kind of like a suburb of Duluth, right across the bridge. It's kind of funny. There's just shredded cheddar cheese all over the road and empty beer bottles. We stayed over there and, uh, you know, there wasn't much going on because it's really small. But we ended up going to the bar and it was like a Packers bar. I've never felt I've never felt so disgusting in all of my life. Oh, I imagine. Yeah, I it's uh, it sounds fucking terrible, (laughs) honestly, with the military at DEFCON 3 for the first time ever along with the knowledge that a Soviet nuclear strike would be preempted by sabotage from the Spetsnaz, or Soviet Special Forces. The security guard fired at the figure near the fence and immediately sounded the alarm for an intruder alert. However, the alleged Russian saboteur turned out to be nothing more than just a curious bear. Look, my first guess was this was Mr. Potato Man, but... Mm. A bear. Okay, let's not fool ourselves that Russians couldn't train a bear to do high-level, like, James Bond-level spy work. Shit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, this bear was probably, uh, I'm half surprised he didn't, like, bite down on a, a cyanide tablet when he got caught. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently after getting shot. I don't know if, I'm not sure if it, so it didn't say anything about the if the bear actually was hit by the bullet but <laughs> the the security guard apparently figured out it was a bear after it got back down on its four legs and ran out into the woods gotcha so. okay i mean i still think he was working with spetsnaz but um <laughs> i don't know that's pretty good that's pretty funny 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, if he didn't want to look stupid, he could have just claimed that it was a large Wisconsin man. You know, <laughs> they do resemble bears in, in many cases. If you see Green Bay games, you'll see quite a few of them out in the out in the stands there. I was going to say, <laughs> we could have just been like, it had to be a rush. He's like, how do you know? Because he ran on all fours. Only Russians <laughs> run on all fours. Because he was what? Because <laughs> he was kind of meandering around, kind of like he was drunk on vodka. Yeah, that's, that's got to be a Russian. <laughs> now this would have all just resulted in a funny story if it wasn't for the fact that the alarms set off at that base were not connected to the alarms at other bases in the area, which were also set off by that security guard after he had shot the alleged intruder. Well, we got to give this bear credit because technically he's penetrated America more than any other Russian spy ever had. Yeah, honestly, if he was working for the (laughs) Spetsnaz, he deserves a fucking medal because he's done. I mean, we can't say that because obviously Russia's entire nuclear weapons program pretty much came from the United States. So, right. Even even their first bomb was modeled directly after the bomb that I think hit Nagasaki. So. Well, the other thing is people probably think you and I have a pretty thick Midwest accent. Duluth is way worse. I can just imagine them accidentally hitting the alarm and just like, oh, boy. Oh, geez. Oh, God. Oh, oh God. Oh, jeez. Hey, hey, Rick, it's a it's a bear over there. Just see him. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so sorry I did that. You know, it's just I'm just my goofing up. Yeah, they do sound like a little bit of a. Kind of like redneck Canadian. That's that's a little. <laughs> yeah. That's like that northern, like that Fargo accent, like redneck Canadian. It's all them uh, deep deep woods uh, Norwegians. Yeah, it's all the spam and the schlitz getting to them. <laughs> so when the alarm was set off, an alarm was also sent to Volk Field in Wisconsin, though. Due to a hastily put together system, obviously put together by Wisconsinians, yeah. the wires for the intruder alert alarms were crossed with the wiring for the klaxon, which was perceived as an order for incoming Soviet bombers. The klaxon caused two squadrons of F-106A interceptors, already at an increased readiness from being at DEFCON 3, to assemble and taxi into their takeoff positions. The pilots of the interceptors, most assuredly, filled up on cheddar brats and the cheapest of beer, carried with them on their planes, not only four air-to-air missiles, but also one 800-pound nuclear-tipped rocket in the belly of each of their planes. Wow, okay. Well, I'm I'm assuming this is why you're not allowed to... uh eat cheese while you're you're at a nuclear site here anymore um because clearly <laughs> you did you, are you making this sound like they accidentally hooked up the wires wrong for the alarm oh, no. so so yeah so this base when they had hooked the wires up for their alarm system they they crossed the wires and what was supposed to be an intruder alert was a klaxon which is basically saying like there's an incoming attack that's what a klaxon is. <laughs> Saying there's an it's an air raid siren. Well, yikes! Holy shit! I, that's a hell of a fuck up there, Phil. Yeah. So hearing a klaxon that you know isn't so that if it would have been an exercise, you'd have been told before the klaxon rang out that they were doing an exercise. So they knew it wasn't an exercise. So hearing that klaxon while you're at DEFCON three, 
during the fucking Cuban Missile Crisis, everyone shit their pants. You yeah. can imagine. Yeah, you can only absolutely. Imagine. Man, this bear, I don't know, man. This guy is just phenomenal. This yeah, I mean, there are a insane. few different... There's So there's two different instances where it's just this weird kind of circumstance almost leads to nuclear war. It's crazy how much the world really was saved from complete fucking disaster just from these little things happening or almost brought to its fucking knees by these other little things happening. It's weird, the circumstances. Right, right. Well, I don't know. Whoever hooked up those wires wrong at the Wisconsin base must have been daydreaming about banging their Brett Favre blow-up doll when they got home or something. I don't know what the hell happened. I thought you were going to say Trey dreaming about banging their cousin, but well, it is Wisconsin. But. Well, it's actually just a block of cheese uh, <laughs> sculpture that looks like Brett Favre that they have sex with. Yeah. Now, luckily, before the interceptors could take off, the base commander at Volk Field called Duluth to confirm the incoming bombers. And when the mistake was told to the commander, one of the officers sprang into action. Now, because Volk Field didn't have a control tower at the time, an officer got into a jeep and drove out onto the taxiway, blocking the fighter jets. He did this also, he basically was flashing his headlights to get the pilot's attention so that they would stop and abort the launch. All right, well, uh, honestly, though, good on that guy. Good on that guy. Yeah, I mean, really doing that could have been seen as some kind of sabotage in itself. That's very a very dangerous thing to do, not only to drive in the direction of like jets that are taking off, because there are security guards probably all over the place. So I'm half surprised you didn't say the bear launched an RPG at his Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be quite a twist to a story if a different if a different Spetsnaz bear launched an RPG at his Jeep and blew it up so so that the planes would take I'm going to just yeah. say this. Who, who's the, Michael Bay, you can steal that idea for your next upcoming movie if you want. The Russian spy bear invasion. Oh yeah, that's it's going to be a that's going to be a covid launch. Not a lot of people <laughs> are going to see it, but the ones who do are going to love it. Now had the planes taken off and crossed the Canadian border to intercept those phantom Soviet bombers. Russian radar operators, already on the highest of alert, would have picked them up and perceived the action as the start of armed conflict, causing a massive escalation and a possible nuclear strike. Yeah, yikes. So they weren't on high alert after one of their comrades got shot at? The bear. They, oh, they were, they, they were on high alert because it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't know if they knew anything about the bear Hopefully the bear didn't have any relatives in Russia. That would piss any of the, you know, the Russians off. But his uncle Nikolai is from Russia. He lives in the in the woods there. He has he's missing part of his leg and has a drinking problem. Yeah, he used to work for the carnival for many years. Of course. <laughs> now, after later analysis of the incident, one thing that was learned was the realization that the fighter interceptor units, like the ones at Volk Field, really didn't have any direct knowledge of the classified routes taken by U.S. strategic air bombers. Like we mentioned before in previous episodes, working under Operation Chrome Dome. Now, there was a possibility, it was found out, that if these fighters had been scrambled, they could have shot down American bombers over Canadian airspace, mistaking them for the Ruskies. 
Okay, that's crazy. Shouldn't they have had, like, some sort of fucking plan for these? Like, where were they going just to bomb Russia immediately? Dude, they were on the seat of their fucking pants. You got the Klaxon came in and they literally, they were probably sitting in a room playing cards and reading magazines and shit. All of a sudden the Klaxon comes in and they run out to their aircraft. They have no idea. All they know is there's incoming bombers. Get in the jets and go find something. That's why they're wow. worried that they could have shot down American bombers. Because there were American bombers that were just kind of, because of Operation Chrome Dome, they always had American bombers in the air with nukes. So they could have actually seen those bombers, thought that they were flying to American targets, and shot them down. Because they were ordered to shoot down American targets. What about the nuke that they had? What were they going to do with that? Yeah, that's another interesting thing. So <laughs> if they did shoot down these Russian bombers, they have this 800-pound rocket that's sitting in the belly of their aircraft. I don't know exactly if that's an air-to-air -air thing or if that's an air-to-ground thing. If they just kind of fire it in the general direction of Russia because maybe that's like the first strike is once the Americans shoot down – I'm just speculating – but maybe it's once the Americans shoot down the bombers, they think, okay, immediately just fire. And from what I've found out pretty much in all of the shit that I've read about this time frame, if you had a nuclear weapon inside of your fighter or your interceptor, you could arm it and fire it without anyone giving you any kind of codes or anything like that. It was basically just like pushing a button on a conventional missile. Jesus. Okay. Yeah, that's scary. That's like honestly really scary. Yeah, and in the in a later story I'll talk about another situation where some interceptors had the ability to fire nuclear weapons and cause massive destruction without any the go ahead was basically given to them when they got in the planes. That Oof. was their go ahead that Oof. you can use these. So, now going back to the Caribbean, when after the blockade of Cuba began, Incoming Soviet ships had been surrounded and harassed by, a by American naval forces who were enforcing this naval blockade. Now, four submarines were sent to Cuba on a secret mission. They were to be stationed at the island and act as a spearhead of Soviet naval forces in the area. These four submarines had one special weapon on board, and that was a 10-kiloton nuclear torpedo that was able to be armed and fired completely independent of any orders from Moscow. So once again, they were given the orders that they were able to fire this nuke when they took off, just like those fighter jets were. Ooh, I mean, is a 10 kiloton like the average size of a nuke or is it bigger? I mean, it's a it's just a torpedo, so it's okay. it's a lot smaller, but 10 kiloton is like it's pretty fucking big. So I'm not exactly sure how that goes up against the Hiroshima bomb. I mean, to me, it sounds like at least 50 atomic elbow drops uh, back to back. I don't know. What do you think? Or possibly one <laughs> elbow drop from the Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah, it's about yeah. 10 kilograms. So. Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, I'm pretty sure that created like some of the craters on the moon from one of his elbow <laughs> drops. Is that extreme? Yeah. That and a power bomb from Psycho Sid. <laughs> now, the captain of each ship, along with his political officer, known as the Zempelit, had two matching keys that were needed to arm the torpedo and fire it. 
Now, one of these ships, the B-59 submarine, dove to prevent itself from being detected by the American forces. However, while underwater, the submarine was not able to contact command, and they really feared that World War III had already begun. And this was after the USS Beale, a Fletcher-class destroyer, began dropping practice depth charges against the submarine, really just in an attempt to get the submarine to surface. Oh my god. This just feels like... I don't... I, this is just feel like the Three Stooges. I, I don't know. Jesus. They could have triggered them at any moment. I mean, yeah. Everyone was just obviously, you know, both militaries, highly trained, everything like that, preparing for this day. The problem is when you actually get into the situation, everyone's on the seat of their fucking pants. No one knows what the fuck's going on. Everyone's making assumptions. When this submarine dove down, like I mentioned, they had lost contact with command. Also, it wasn't a nuclear-powered submarine, so when it's underwater, it's starting to lose battery power. The, the diesel engines power the batteries, so when it's underwater, it's run on battery power. They were starting to run out of all power on the ship after a while. Gotcha. Okay. Because of days underwater spent by the submarine, unable to communicate with Moscow, and the fact that the batteries on the submarine were running dangerously low and life support would be needed to take it offline soon. On October 27th, the captain of B-59 believed that the depth charges were an attack by the destroyer with the zampelet of the submarine in total agreement. Now, because of this, the captain had already begun the process of ordering the arming and firing of the submarine's 10 kiloton nuclear-tipped torpedo at the American fleet, and it would have decimated the American fleet. Yeah, I imagine it would have. Luckily, the flotilla commander, Vasily Arkhipov, was on board the submarine and had the power to veto the launch of the nuclear torpedo. Arkhipov was sure that the depth charges were only dummies, and he actually stopped the destruction of the American fleet along with the beginning spark for an all-out nuclear war. Wow. Okay, so he's not... Okay, so you said there's the political guy and another guy, and then this guy can override those two guys who also have authority to launch the missile. Okay, so imagine him. He's kind of like the admiral of the fleet. So there's the flotilla of these four submarines. Every one of the submarines has a captain and then a political officer, which is basically like a Soviet. He's like the party guy, the 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 communist guy from the party. Gotcha. So the the captain and the party commander were in agreement. However, the admiral, the flotilla commander, happened to be on this ship and he had the power to veto. So if he, if this admiral, this flotilla commander, would have been on a different ship, he wouldn't have been able to communicate not to fire that torpedo. So luckily, he was on this ship because he had the power to veto any torpedo launch. Well, I would say they're more lucky that it was uh, before 12 o'clock because this guy was clearly still sober. If it was anything past noon, he would have been blackout drunk and wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to uh, uh, veto the nuclear missile launch. Well, it was a long trip from their submarine <laughs> bases in the Arctic Circle, and I'm guessing they would have been refueled and resupplied with vodka while in Cuba. So they might have been out of wicker by then. Ah, okay. So, okay. He thought, we can't die here. We got to get more booze before we all 
uh, start a whole new war. Yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty sure in the Russian Navy, running out of any sort of booze at all is grounds for being hanged, I assume. Yeah, it's a capital right. punishment for sure. Definitely. Probably the worst thing you can do. <laughs> now, had Arkhipov not been on board, the captain of the submarine and the Zampolet would have had the two keys needed to arm the Hiroshima-level explosive device by themselves. Okay, so there it is. It's equivalent. And the go-ahead to do so without any approval from Moscow. Oh, my God, Phil. Um, God, that would have been fucking insane. Like, I, I, like in all seriousness, if that would have happened, that would have been, I don't know. I don't know. I, You and I probably wouldn't even be here today, to be honest with you. Well, let's see. During the 60s, my parents were living in... My mom was living in West Iowa and my dad was living in East Iowa. So I think they would have been all right from nuclear fallout, considering Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, St. Louis, all the big cities are like hundreds of miles away. No, so. you know, Kreskawai was the number one target in the world. Oh, yeah, they have the uh, <laughs> they have the cheese factory in Schley, See? So definitely. Yeah, they, that's a big uh, resource center for America, clearly. They had Definitely. a come and go. They had a come and go. There's not many of them left. <laughs> no, no, there's not. There was probably more back then. But <laughs> And they had a liquor store that probably had a huge selection of vodkas be a high-priority high target for the Russians. Well, that means they wouldn't have taken them out. They would have preserved it for when they when they invaded. Well, they probably would have Red killed Dawn the whole style. town. Yeah, they would have killed the whole town, though, to, to capture uh, the vodka. One thing that really amazed me was like doing all this research, figuring out like back in the 60s, just how many different tiny nuclear devices, because you always hear the number is just crazy. It's like, you know, the, the total amount of nuclear devices was 50,000 or something like that, 60,000, just crazy numbers. And you think to yourself like, oh, wow, those must be all like big bombs, like gigantic bombs. Like when you think of fat man and little boy you think of those giant bombs those must be all those big bombs well no they're just these tiny little like tip of the spear that go on either torpedoes or missiles or little rockets that can be sent on planes or dropped from even small aircraft they weren't all these giant nuclear bombs like we all think of they were actually some of them were pretty tiny yeah. but they were like the level of hiroshima I imagine the nukes nowadays are pretty compact and deadly. Yeah, I mean, there was the, I don't know if it was just a concept, but it was the shoulder-fired nuclear warhead. I think you just were watching uh, Starship Troopers. I know, it's on Starship Troopers, <laughs> but I think that was actually a, a thing. That might have been an actual like concept design, like prototype, from either the Russians or the Americans. Well, if the bugs ever invade the world, we'll know if they're real or not. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is a great documentary, but I'm pretty sure in real life, they would have been destroyed by that nuclear blast, so. <laughs> I think the brain bug might actually be, um, what the hell is this, Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, in human like, form. evolved into his perfect form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he mutated. I mean, that the bug brain wasn't that much bigger than Jeff Bezos's head, so. <laughs> That's true. Now, along with these two instances, on the same day as the B-59 had nearly fired on the American fleet on October 27th, a late night mission for a U-2 spy plane piloted by Captain Charles Maltzby on a mission to collect air samples from the North Pole in order to detect 
radiation from Soviet nuclear tests just south of the Arctic Circle. Now, Captain Mosby was a veteran of the Korean War, having been shot down during that war and spent over 600 days as a prisoner of war in the captivity of the North Koreans. He was a very experienced pilot, though that night, the Northern Lights obscured his views of the stars, and he wasn't able to find his way back to Isleson Air Force Base in Alaska. Hmm, interesting, okay. Now, the reason why he wasn't able to use his compass was because he was in the Arctic Circle, and the North Pole being right there screwed up the magnetism of the compass. So that's why he had to use the stars. Gotcha, okay. All right, that makes sense. Now, Captain Mosby would first realize that something was terribly wrong when the Alaskan radio station signals became weaker and weaker. He would eventually pick up balalaika music and chatter in Russian on his radio. That's my favorite and that's station. When, oh, yeah. I, I love listening to balalaika <laughs> music. I can't even I don't even know if that's a real word or whatnot. Balalaika. But I don't know. But it, it I imagine the Russians get their hips moving when that shit comes on the radio. Oh, yeah. They get out the chair and they do their little their little ruski dance and everything. <laughs> yeah. Now, realizing just how far off course he must have been, Molsky called out Mayday on his radio, hoping to hear from his interceptor escort aircraft, which was supposed to have rendezvoused with him. However, the interceptor aircraft, also beginning to worry, called out on the radio that he would be firing flares for the lost pilot to help find his way home, but was too far away from the wayward U-2 for the captain to see. Yeah, so even though it's like the middle of the night, the flares were too, I mean, too far away for him to even kind of notice them. And if you mention the Northern Lights, it's pretty bright too, right? Especially when you're in the North Pole. Yeah. Yeah. The U-2 had wandered about 300 miles into Russian airspace, causing the Soviet MiG fighter jets to be scrambled in an attempt to intercept the reconnaissance airplane. They had been given orders to shoot down the intruder. Now, this in turn caused the Americans to scramble their interceptors from their own bases in Alaska, which were now newly armed with nuclear-tipped Falcon air-to-air missiles, which was in place of their conventional air-to-air missiles due to the fact that the strategic due to the fact that the US strategic forces were at Deathcon 3 the pilots of those interceptor aircraft the F102 Delta Daggers were free to arm and fire the nuclear missiles without approval from command <sighs> man you know this whole time you've been telling this fucking story Phil there's they're real real lackadaisical about uh, all these yep. people having nukes I've given you three examples of different stories, and every single time I've mentioned that phrase in every yeah. single story. It's, so it, It's literally like the U.S. military at this point is like fucking Oprah giving away shit to her audience members. Yeah, you get a nuke, and yeah. you get a nuke, and you get a nuke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really the reason why we have the whole football situation, why it's centralized, why you cannot fire a nuclear anything without command approval yeah so yeah I, people i mean l- like you said people um who are flying these planes for example uh they're mentally in a very heightened state state of fear i would imagine and hitting yes. that button wouldn't take very much when you're like in a panicked scenario 
I don't know if any of these interceptor fighters from the Americans or the Russian had actually been in any kind of firefight, but I wonder if you would be a little bit more hesitant to fire a nuclear missile rather than a conventional missile, or if your training would just take over and you just automatically fire. Because it's not even like they have the option to use conventional missiles. All of their all of their normal like conventional explosive air-to-air missiles have been replaced with nuclear missiles. So that's what they were working with. Gotcha. Okay. Now, had these interceptor pilots fired even one of their yeah. nuclear-tipped missiles, they would have destroyed everything within a half-mile radius. Now, this definitely would have threatened a response from the Russians and could also have caused a full exchange of nuclear weapons from both sides. I don't know if I would even say could have. I'm pretty certain that would have happened. Yes, the Americans firing a nuclear missile, blowing it up inside of Russian airspace, definitely would have called for a response. Yeah. It would have escalated the situation like exponentially. So Now, running low on fuel, Captain Moltsby turned off his radio and his engine and tried his best to glide east. Until about at 25 feet elevation, he had spotted American interceptors who welcomed him once he turned on his radio. And they told him where the nearest landing strip was that he could land safely. He actually ended up coming into a skid landing on the icy runway. Okay, well, he had a nice story to tell the ladies at the bar. Oh, definitely. So uh, (laughs) upon his return back to Alaska, Captain Moltsby's 10-hour, 25-minute flight was the longest ever recorded for a U-2. After he got out of the plane, somebody actually, when he crash-landed, someone had to pull him out of the plane because his legs were completely numb from being in the compact cockpit. He ran over to a snowbank and took a piss. That's what the the story was saying. Okay. Can he not just pee in his plane? Well, I imagine if you piss in the like your suit it's gonna be just like pissing your pants it's gonna stick with you so gotcha well i mean i'm I'm gonna be real with you here phil after 10 hours and 25 minutes i'm probably pissing my pants yeah i mean he must have really held it in i don't know how like how long he had to go for but that's what it claimed that he ran over maybe he just added that to the story to make it sound like he never pissed his pants in his suit but probably yeah Probably. But I was going to mention also that two years prior, uh, very famously, a U-2 pilot was shot down over Russian airspace. He was brutally interrogated and held for 21 months before being released. And they definitely used him as a political prisoner, putting him up on a mock trial and the whole nine, really. So, okay. And this didn't spark a war or anything, huh? Just like, were they even concerned about him? Was who concerned about like him? the, the Russians or US, US, the US? Oh, no, definitely. Uh, there's a whole deal about um, Kennedy hearing news about this and thinking that it's just, oh, shit, another fucking thing, basically. Really, after this incident, McNamara actually canceled all air sample gathering flights for the foreseeable future because they didn't want another of these incidents happening. Yeah. Seems like these YouTube boys like to get themselves in trouble. Yeah, I mean, really, during the Cuban Missile Crisis over Cuba, there was a U-2 pilot who was shot down, so. Okay, no, these U-2 guys, you gotta, you gotta get them out of there. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's the lack of oxygen that kind of scrambles our brains or something. They do fly 14 miles above the Earth. So True, true. So all three of these instances and the all-around climate of distrust and disdain that had existed between both sides really do highlight the fragile situation that the world had faced during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, I just want to ask you, of the three of those, what do you think would have been the most likely to cause a all-out nuclear exchange? And what do you think is probably like the least likely? Um, ooh, I mean, I, I would have to say the sub one, probably the most hmm. like, like, dude, I even thinking about it, you can kind of envision that in your head. Like they're in the sub, they have it, you know, ready to go and they're dropping depth charges you know, to I, you said they were doing it to like test them to try to get the sub to come up, right? Yeah, they were dropping like dummy, dummy dub charges just to get them to come to the surface. But oh, the so captain of that ship didn't take it as just dummy. Uh, they were still exploding, but they weren't the they weren't the backbreaking dub charges that gotcha. Well, like you see in the movies, it, they were they were just little ones. Well, I mean, yeah. even still. Like, how do you know for certain, especially in that intense of a of a scenario? Like, how do you know for certain? I feel like that one could have went bad real quick. Um, I want to say the bear one is number two, just because okay. that one has a special place in my heart. And it's Wisconsin people, so I don't know how the hell you stop them from just immediately attacking the quote-unquote communists. Um, but uh, if we're being honest, I think a YouTube pilot... That one sounded like uh, he was entering their land, man. I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't as much the U-2 pilot as it was the interceptors who were out to find the U-2 pilot. Had the interceptors actually engaged Russian MiGs, then something definitely could have happened. But from what it sounded like, they were just trying to find the U-2 pilot and get him back home. So, yeah, it's yeah, I don't know. All three of them honestly could have went sour real quick the bear's my favorite i'm just throwing that out there just because i think there's more to that story than than just an ordinary bear but uh that's my own theory how about you phil what do you think uh i really do actually like the torpedo story i mean Uh just like what you were saying imagine the americans announced to stalin that we're putting up a naval blockade to keep you from going to russia and then all of a sudden just a couple of days later a submarine with one torpedo blows up the entire fleet blocking. That would be, that would be insane. Yeah. That would uh, definitely blowing up all of those ships and all of those sailors would call for a response. Yeah. Oh my God. And yeah. especially in the fucking Gulf of Mexico too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's man that could have went. I, I don't know. I just thinking about it in my head. I'm like, just thinking about them, knowing that submarine's down there and they're still dropping those fucking charges. Like, I just feel like that doesn't sound like a great idea. Yeah, it's almost like you're just using those little toy. Well, the so the flotilla commander called them. He must have heard it in the incoming, like the sonar, because he said that he knew from the start that they were toy charges. He called them toys, basically. So he must have been able to hear from the sound that they made that they weren't the real depth charges. So gotcha. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense then. I thought that was just like a gut call. 
No, it wasn't a gut call. Well, I mean, it was a gut call, but he was basically saying if they if they were actually attacking us, they would be using real depth charges. They were dropping them all around them, so they would have taken damage. From those depth charges, though, they weren't taking any damage, it sounds like. Gotcha. Okay. <sighs> but yeah, I'm just saying that they're very lucky that he knew the difference, I think. Yeah, they're very lucky that the flotilla commander, which is, I think, like admiral equivalent, they're very lucky that he was there, honestly, because they wouldn't have been able to call anyone. It was totally, it was their call. They had the keys, and they were ready to put the keys in the lock. So, Oof, Oof. yeah, that could have been, that could have, man, that could have been, the whole world would have been different. That would have been nuts. Honestly, though, this is great, Phil. I don't think a lot of people probably have heard about any of these stories. I mean, honestly, I didn't have any, I mean, everybody knows about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but these other three scenarios, I would put money, not many people know it. Yeah, originally when I was going to do this episode, I was really thinking about going through like the 1950s, the 1960s, maybe like one or two in the 70s and 80s, because it all kind of ends around the 80s. There isn't really much that happens after the end of the Cold War, but- I was looking at all of them, and then I realized the most interesting stories and kind of like the best angle I could take was the Cuban Missile Crisis because yeah. so much happened during this three weeks. Right, right, yeah. Uh, clearly, uh, some mm-hmm. very big <laughs> events happened. Yeah. We're very lucky that, I mean, like I was saying before, if you do believe in alternate dimensions, alternate universes, what have you, there is definitely some alternate dimensions out there that are living in like the video game Fallout right now. Right. From this, these instances. So. Right. Yikes. Well, uh, anyway, Phil, excellent job. But uh, let's close this out here. First off, we want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. You know, letting us know that you appreciate our work. We will have had a new off the record drop prior to this episode dropping. So I hope uh, all of you are enjoying that. Uh, it seems like We've gotten pretty good feedback about uh, that particular series, our little uh, banter show we we have as a Patreon exclusive. Uh, Otherwise, Phil, if someone wants to contact us, if the bear, you know, if the bear who disturbed that base in Duluth wants to contact us, where can you do that? Yes, if uh, the bear or anyone from Duluth or Wisconsin <laughs> want to get a hold of us and give us a good uh, give us a good talking to, they can hit us up on our brand new website www.subliminaldeception.com. There, they can find a contact link where they can just put in their info and the body of their message, and it goes straight to our email. The old-fashioned way of getting a hold of us through our email is, of course subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com both Cody and I have access to that email we love hearing from uh, you guys the fans and love getting all the support the best way to get a hold of us is probably on our Instagram subliminal deception podcast on IG Uh, we're all over that one and get a lot of great messages a lot of great likes and everything love to hear from our fans on that one too Uh, Get a hold of us there. If you have any ideas for episodes, like I mentioned before, uh, I am working on the Hunter Killer episode. So that one's probably going to be my next one uh, in. Oh, no, wait. Episode 100 is two weeks. Yeah. yeah, So the one after Hunter Killer. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And uh, actually watch out for episode 100 in two weeks when Cody and I will give the big 
special episode 100 flat earth episodes so Hell yeah that's coming that's gonna be really fun yeah i can't wait for that one it's it's been a long time coming about two years <laughs> coming that we've had this idea so <laughs> yeah we both also have our own instagrams mine is sd pod phil uh cody you got one yeah you can follow my personal instagram at cody's above uh the last thing we need you guys to do is to log on itunes and leave the show five star view doesn't really matter what you say as long as it's five star. Um, you can especially leave us a review, five star preferably. If you believe we are Satanists as well, uh, apparently one individual thinks that we are. So thank you for that. I appreciate that, honestly. Uh, otherwise, if you're a Spotify Definitely. user, <laughs> you just got to hit that follow button. Same thing as our review for Spotify. So thank you to everybody who's done that. We really appreciate it. It helps the show grow, um, which is what is uh, all podcasts want, is just uh, to have the show grow and reach different people. But uh, Phil, excellent job, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs>